Well, last week we began our sermon series titled Parables of Jesus. Uh, not the parables of Jesus, because we're not going through all of them. There's over 40 of them, but this summer we'll look at at least eight of them. Last week we looked at the, uh, the parable of the sower, and if you, if you missed it, you can always listen online at gracehamptons.org. Today we're going to study three short parables. Short, but they tell us a lot. The first two we will like, and the third one, well, we just might not like it. What am I talking about? Well, how about we read Matthew 13, verses 44 through 50. Ready? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good in containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you uh, that your words give life to us, uh, life eternal uh, and hope and joy right now. They really do transform us. May we, as we learned last week, may we be receptive soil to the words of Jesus. May we learn from them. May he humble us and challenge us. And may we grow and be fruitful, we pray. Amen. <laughs> My father was an infomercial junkie. In the last few years of his life, Pops hardly turned down a single commercial's call to stop what he was doing and buy the latest invention. Call now and we'll double your offer. Just pay separate shipping and handling. Operators on standby. Limited time offer. My father bought all kinds of things. He bought the sham wow, the slap chop. I wish I still had that pair of blue blocker glasses he bought me. Of course, there's the Snuggie. My kids still enjoy wrapping themselves in the Snuggie. Pops was a sucker for the so-called good bargain and slick marketing. In our modern Western society, we're used to finding bargains and making split decisions to buy them. We tend to, to brag about it. Someone will notice. They will say, oh, that's a beautiful top you're wearing. And then you will say, well, the women will at least, uh, oh, it was a bargain. I got it at Nordstrom Rack. It was $300 top for $49. I just couldn't say no. In the first two parables, Jesus describes two people who just couldn't say no. But the item on offer wasn't a trendy fashion item. Jesus is describing what the wise do when they hear about the kingdom of heaven. They buy it. That is, they are willing to part with anything on earth in order to belong to Christ's kingdom. That's what the first two parables tell us. 
But then there's the third parable, the parable of the net. This one shocks and offends most Americans. How can a loving God bring judgment? What's Jesus getting at? Jesus wants all those who listen to understand that the kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure you could ever possess. But he also wants us to recognize that there will be a day to come when it could be too late to enter. The kingdom of heaven is of priceless worth. Therefore, we must believe the gospel and enter now. That's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to divide our area basically into the, our time into the first two parables and then the last parable. In the first parable, verse 44, Jesus states, the kingdom of heaven is like. What does he say it's like? He says it's like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and then he covered it back up. Now, Quick point of information. There were no banks in Jesus' day. There were no safety deposit boxes. So people regularly buried their treasures in jars in the ground. And they told no one where they were hidden. And if someone went off to war, which they often did, and if someone went off to war and died, well, the treasure would lay hidden. Unless, of course, someone came and plowed it up and found it. That's what Jesus said happened in this parable. Now, obviously, the land wasn't his, so he buried it and went and sold everything he had and came back and bought the land. And some today find fault with that. You know, it doesn't seem like that's ethical. But guess what? That was the law in Jesus's day. Today, we call it finders, keepers, losers, weepers. But in Jesus' day, the the law stated that in many instances, if you found buried treasure on some property, even if it wasn't yours, uh, your property, it was yours to keep. But to make sure there could be no repercussions, what does this man do? He goes out, sells all he has to buy the land. And who could blame him, right? I mean, if you were this poor man and you stumbled upon treasure, would you not go out and sell everything you owned so that you could buy the field that the treasure lay in? Of course you would. And would you drag your feet all sad? No, you wouldn't. How did this man go? Jesus said, in his joy, he goes. Check this out. Here's what the man does. He runs home, dusts off that old pair of rollerblades, finds that old Toro lawnmower that still starts on the first pole, his tackle box full of his prized lures, his trusty hammock, his prized collection of vinyl records. He found his half-worn pair of Birkenstocks, and he logs into Craigslist Galilee region, and he lists it all. This man decisively lays his hands on everything of worth that he owns, and he sells it all in order to purchase something he never dreamed he could ever have. Understand this, selling all that he had to gain treasure, it was not a sacrifice. The little he had brought him treasure that made him wealthy. So Jesus is saying this, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like stumbling across a life you never thought you could ever experience. And so you sell everything in order to enter into it and to get it. That's the first parable. In verse 45, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. This is man, this man is different than the first one, right? How so? Well, he is wealthy. He's not a small town jewelry shop owner. He is a wholesaler of pearls who travels to find pearls to distribute. 
And where the poor man, what, stumbled upon his treasure, this merchant is actively looking for fine pearls. He knows a good pearl when he sees one. So one day he arrives in a town, and a pearl diver sees him from a distance. He's been waiting for this man. Of all the pearl merchants, this is the one he wants to show this beautiful pearl to. This is the merchant who actually has the resources to give the diver what the pearl is worth. Come with me, says the pearl diver. I have something that will interest you. Then seated in a secure location, he unfolds the black cloth, exposing the giant radiant pearl, and the merchant's jaw drops. He wipes the sweat off of his brow as he contemplates his next move, and he says, does anybody else know about this? Good. I'll be back by the next full moon. Jesus said he went and sold all that he had and bought the pearl. Listen, he didn't just go and sell his inventory of pearls to buy this pearl in order to sell it. No, he sold all that he had and he bought it, this priceless pearl, so that he could keep it forever. Now that was a sacrifice. He went from owning a Falcon 7X jet and a home in the Hamptons to living in a double wide and driving an 06 Nissan Sentra. In the first parable, it was joy that made him willing to sell. For this merchant, though, what? It was a prudent calculation that led to an extravagant action. Yet both acted with what? Wholehearted response. There was nothing else they could do. To, to sell all and to buy was the right thing to do. They had to do it. Now understand this. Jesus is not saying that we buy our way into his kingdom, either with money or with our supposed good works or good behavior. The only way you and I can enter into this kingdom is in humility, by God's grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peace with God and membership in his kingdom is, is a gift. But like any gift, for it to become yours, you must receive it and open it. And that is what these two men demonstrate, their decisive reception of the gift of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what else do these two parables teach us? Well, one, I think they teach us that there's two kinds of people. There's, there's the one who stumbles upon the kingdom and there's the one who's in search of it. Like the man plowing in the field, there's countless people who, who are going about their lives with hardly a care for the eternal and spiritual realities, but then, bam, their plow hits some perhaps hardship in life. And because of the hardship, they come to hear about Christ and they enter into his kingdom joyfully. Others, they're searching. They know that this life, with all of its sorrows and brokenness, it just can't be all that there is. They reflect on the universe. They ask big questions like, why are we here? Is there a God? Is he knowable? What is the meaning of life? They search out all kinds of philosophies and religions. But when they really lay their hands upon the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and when they understand it, they see that all other philosophies and religions um, as utterly inferior to the priceless pearl of Christ and his kingdom. My friends, that's the story of Justin Martyr. He was born in 100 A.D. Yes, that's a little while ago. 
uh, and became a philosopher and teacher in Rome. When he was young, he started out as an, as an adherent of Stoicism, and, and then he became a Pythagorean, and still later he turned to Platonism. But even Platonism proved unfulfilling to Justin's hungry heart. Then around 130 AD, an old man shared the gospel message of Christ with Justin. Here's what he wrote. Of course, he wrote it in Greek. I'm going to read it in English. A fire was suddenly kindled in my soul. I fell in love with the prophets and these men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all of their words and found that this philosophy alone was true and profitable. That is how and why I became a philosopher. And I wish, listen, that everyone felt the same way that I do. Justin opened a Christian school in Rome, but then in 165 AD, he and some of his students were arrested, and since they refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods as they were demanded, they were condemned, scourged, and beheaded. After his death, he was given the surname Martyr. And to this day, we know him as Justin Martyr, the one who searched for and sacrificed all for the one true philosophy, the one priceless pearl that rules them all. So that's the point Jesus is making. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable that what that whether you stumble upon it or search and find it, you will sell all you have to make sure that it's yours. That's the that's the point. But I think we need a little more help here this morning. See, until we see the kingdom ourselves as priceless, we won't enter it at all. So why is the kingdom of heaven so priceless? Well, so valuable. The kingdom of heaven is so priceless because by it and through it, everything you could ever long for, plus things you never even knew you could experience, become yours. Oh, the joy. Oh, the happiness. See, ultimately, what is it that gets you out of your bed in the morning? What, what is it that drives you to turn in your homework on time or to hang out on the beach or to save money for a rainy day? The answer is happiness. Every human being is driven by an inner longing for happiness. And the problem isn't that we seek happiness. The problem is from where we seek it. <laughs> Until one enters the kingdom of heaven, they are seeking for happiness in this broken world. Perhaps that's you here this morning. See, the problem is, though, that our world is so broken and we are so broken that the happiness that we find here in this world is a broken happiness. Just give it time. We will either lose interest or whatever it is will fall apart. Or worse yet, it'll leave us. Our hearts, our hearts which understand eternity, can never be satisfied with temporary joys. Which is why Justin penned this famous line. Listen, he says, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in Thee. That's why C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. 
That's what the kingdom of heaven is. Not so much in other world, but this world. Redeemed and restored by God's power and grace. Restored in perfection. The world you love, full of good things. Yet every good thing in this earth is fading away or dying. And yet when the kingdom comes, in this age to come, everything will be made right. All those good feelings you have will still be there, but all that temptation and all the things you wish you never would have said or did, that all that will be gone. That old nature will be driven away. And on that day, anything at all that threatens our happiness will be gone forever. No more sin or disease, strife, hunger. All that plagues this world today will become a distant, fading memory. That's the message of Christ about His kingdom. So ask yourself, why did Jesus cast out demons and heal the sick? To demonstrate that the kingdom has come and one day it it, it will heal all disease and will cure all anxieties. Why did he walk on water and powerfully calm a raging sea to demonstrate that the kingdom he brings has this wonderful power over all creation? Why did he die on the cross? To demonstrate that he came from heaven to bring forgiveness and peace and welcome into his kingdom. Why did he rise from the grave? To demonstrate that the victory is won. And that one day he will return with this final installment of the kingdom that our hearts long for. For now the kingdom is spiritual. It dwells in the hearts of those who belong to it. In the age to come, the kingdom will be fully on earth as it is in heaven. When Christ returns, He will recreate heaven upon earth. And all who belong to the kingdom by faith will rise from the dead in astonishing new bodies and dwell in perfect joy in the presence of our loving God. So, the kingdom of heaven is the answer to all of mankind's woes. That's why it's so priceless. That's why when you finally understand it, you'll do anything to enter it. Question is, have you done that? Now for the last parable, the parable of the net. Here we see the urgency of believing the gospel and entering the kingdom. Look at verse 47. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. Now, everyone in Jesus' day would have understood the fisherman's story. The fisherman had a huge net with weights on the bottom and would take a crew of them. They would go out in a boat and then they would drag this net to the shore. And in that net would be any and all the fish that were right there. They would catch them all. Everyone knew, though, not all fish are good for eating. So the fishermen do what? They keep the good and discard the bad. We all get that. We understand that we need to separate good fish from bad fish. The problem we moderns have is what, what, with what Jesus says next. It ticks off about 85% of Americans. See, Jesus explains what this parable symbolizes. Look at verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. That, that age when Jesus returns and restores this universe, this world to glory 
Um, he says, at the end of the age, angels will come and separate out the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, maybe you're here today and you find these words of Jesus objectionable. I get it. How can a loving God damn people to hell? My God is a God of love, you say. Well, let's investigate first. Let's begin with the question, why do you say that God is a love? Why is he a God of love? Where do you get that belief? Maybe you think that's what the world religions teach, that God is a loving God, but actually that's not what we see. The God or gods of Hinduism, they aren't loving. Muslims would disagree with the statement, God is love. Not that they wouldn't, if you pressured them, say, well, he's merciful, so I guess you could say he's loving. But of all of their God's attributes, love is not what comes to mind for a Muslim. Maybe you're like I was into Buddhism. Guess what? There is no God in Buddhism, right? The, the end game in Buddhism is to elevate yourself to a state of non-being and melt into nothingness of nirvana. But isn't it true to love requires individual personhood? <laughs> So you can never come to conclude that God is love in Buddhism. So you cannot get the belief that God is love from all these world religions. In fact, 80% of the people alive on planet Earth disagree with the statement, God is love. So then if you insist that God is love, where did that idea come from? It came from the Bible. Only in the Bible do we see that God is love. But also, we see these two truths simultaneously. God is loving and God is just. Think about it. Love and justice are compatible. More than that, they belong together. What if I told you I love my kids so much? But then you found out that one of my daughters was being violently bullied at school. She was coming home with scrapes and bruises. She was sad and depressed. And what if you found out that I did nothing about it? Would you say that I really love my daughter? No, you would say that because of my indifference, I must not really love her at all. Any dad of his half his weight and half his worth in salt would, would remember to do a number of things. He would do what? He would comfort his daughter and help her to heal. He would go to the school and make sure the administrators and the teachers were held accountable. He would make sure the parents of the bullies knew about the evil that their kids were doing. He'd most likely call the police and investigate and bring the bullies to justice, right? Love and justice must be compatible. Now, if we humans agree that, that we should be loving and just, why shouldn't God also be loving and just? Put it this way. If God is love and he sees all the evil and injustice on earth, and if he doesn't do anything, my friends, that would be tragic. A loving God who never judges or punishes the evil in the world is no God worthy of our affection. So don't reject the Christian God who is both loving and just. Instead, reject the God who is supposedly loving but never judges. 
Now, the fact that God is loving and just, I think it still presents a problem for us this morning. See, isn't it true? We hope that God will judge others, right? Especially now that summer's here in the Hamptons, right? We hope that God will judge others who have harmed us. But the problem is, we ourselves have what? Harmed others. We're not innocent. None of us could stand before a perfect good God and claim our innocence. We're all guilty of sinning against God. And so we deserve justice from God. Now understand this. Sin isn't so much all the little naughty things you do um, hidden in your own privacy of your own home. Sin in its simplest description is this. Sin is to live in the Creator's world as if the Creator doesn't exist. And understand this. You can say you believe in God and still function and live as if He really doesn't exist. Perhaps you're thinking, well, my God would never restrict my freedom to live how I want to. Guess what? God does give you freedom. All the freedom you desire. And if you desire to use your freedom to live your life apart from God, then I'm sad to say He will grant that wish for you. C.S. Lewis describes hell this way. He said, hell is the place where those who say no to God in this lifetime get their wish for all eternity. Dr. Peter Kreef says, the national anthem of hell is, I did it my way. Now, C.S. Lewis also makes the point that hell is more than a place. It is who people really become. See, what starts in this life, even at very young age, is a bitter spirit or a tendency to judge others or, or to be envious or, or, or to be self-centered. That grows over time, does it not? Little sins that begin in our youth take deep roots in us as we age. By the time we become elderly, that tendency that you had when you were young to blame others becomes a nagging obsession that hijacks your every waking moment. So every human being is on a trajectory. And when you die apart from Christ, your saying no to God in this lifetime will carry on for all eternity. And doing an eternity where you become less and less human and more and more possessed by the bitterness and self-centeredness that marked your life on earth. In his fantasy book, The Great Divorce, which is on our book table back there, C.S. Lewis describes a busload of people um, from hell who come to the outskirts of heaven. There they are urged to leave behind the sins that have trapped them in hell, but they refuse. Lewis's descriptions of these people are striking because we recognize in them the self-delusion and self-absorption that are writ small in our present addictions. Here's what Lewis writes. Listen. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. Always complaining. Always blaming others. But you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. 
then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the body. So think it through, please. In love, Jesus is warning us about the judgment to come. God is both loving and just. He wants us all to be sober-minded about life and death. Listen, statistics say that you have a 100% chance of dying in your lifetime. So now is the time to see the kingdom, to delight in it. And enter it. Now, if you're still trying to wrap your head around Jesus' warning that one day a loving God will judge you, then I, I ask you to meditate upon the cross. The answer is there. We're about ready to go to the Lord's Supper. Think about this. On the cross of Jesus Christ, God's perfect love and His perfect justice meet. Do they not? Since God cannot overlook our sin and still be loving, He does something amazing. He sends His Son in our place to take the punishment that we deserve so that both God's love and His justice are fully satisfied. My friends, that is the treasure that Jesus wants us to behold. There is no better news than that God Himself entered into our brokenness and sin and misery to usher in His kingdom. The kingdom has come. And the kingdom will one day fully come. There is no other pearl that compares. Now, may we joyfully sell all and enter it. Father, you heap kindness upon kindness into this world. All day long, the heavens declare your glory. We are without excuse. We come thanking you that, that you are both loving and just. And we're thankful that the cross has come, that we may be at peace with you, restored, that we may enter your kingdom and ask for you to rule over us in wisdom and love. We give our lives to you this morning. We give to you all that we have so that we can be members of your kingdom. Amen.